The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, Center, and Source. May God guide and encourage you through this message by Beth Coppage. Let's start today in Jeremiah, and we are in 17, 5 through, 5 through 6. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his arm, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. It's a pretty dismal picture, is it not? For that when we trust in ourselves instead of trusting in him. So let's turn in our scriptures, if you will, this morning to Jeremiah 13. We're looking at Jeremiah 13 through 17 this morning. And y'all are troopers. You're, you're just troopers to stick with me in Jeremiah. The symbol of the loincloth. The last few chapters, what has been happening is God has spoken to them through metaphor, using the metaphor of a bride and a groom and a husband and a wife. And God is the husband and the wife has gone after many loves and broken the covenantal marriage relationship. Now God's trying to get their attention and God is using object lessons. The great fifth grade teacher, he's using object lessons. If they won't hear through metaphor, maybe they'll hear through object lessons. Sounds like us with our children, does it not? He is trying to draw them to himself, but their hearts are hard. Chapter 13 of Jeremiah. Thus the Lord said to me, Go and get yourself a linen sash and put it around your waist, but do not put it in water. So I got a sash according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came to me the second time saying, Take the sash that you acquired, which is around your waist, and arise, go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a hole in the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded. Now it came to pass after many days that the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates and take from there the sash which I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and I dug and I took the sash from the place where I had hidden it. And there was the sash ruined. It was profitable for absolutely nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Thus says the Lord, in this manner, I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who, one, refuse to hear my words, who, two, follow the dictates of their hearts, who, three, walk after other gods to serve them and worship them, and they shall be just like this sash, which is unprofitable for nothing. For as the sash clings to the waist of a man, so I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord, that they may become my people for honor, for praise, and for glory. But they would not hear. And then if you'll turn over to 17, beginning with verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. 
With the point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of your altars. While their children remember their altars and their wooden images by the green trees on the high hills. O my mountain in the field, I will give as plunder your wealth, all your treasures in your high places of sin, with all your, within all your borders. And you, even yourself, shall let go of heritage which I gave you, and I will cause you to serve your enemies. In the land which you do not know, for you have a kindled a fire in my anger, which shall burn forever. Thus said the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert, and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land which is not inhabited. Blessed, blessed. Blessed is the woman who trusts in the Lord, yippee, <laughs> and who hopes in the Lord. For she shall be like a tree planted by waters, which spreads out a root by the river. She will not fear when he comes, but her leaf will be green. And she will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will she cease from yielding fruit. The heart is a deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. And then verse 14. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For you are my praise. Jesus, would you like to come to Bible study this morning? And would you ever teach it for us? Lord Jesus, no one is adequate to open up this marvelous passage of Scripture except your Spirit. So, dear Holy Spirit, would you come and break open the Word to our hearts? And then would you do more than that? Would you apply it? Would you apply it to every one of us beginning in me? And Lord, these are not easy sayings, but we pray you would make us meat and potato Christians and that, God, there would be a hunger in our hearts for reality instead of just warm fuzzies and, and spiritual fluff. God, would you transform someone today? Would you begin in me, Jesus? I need a new touch from you. And I pray, Jesus, that you would open my heart and open our hearts that we might see Jesus we might see eternity. We might see reality as it really is. And Jesus, would you unstop our ears? Father, we all are deaf and dumb and blind. Would you unstop our ears so we can hear the sweet love call of God himself to our hearts and then let us say yes. Now we just thank you for what you're going to do in the next few minutes and we wait expectantly on tiptoe with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. I remember when my daddy was in grad school, there's five in my family, and he, he was doing graduate work at Brandeis University in Massachusetts, and yet he was working part-time preaching at Loudonville Community Church in New York. So on weekends he preached, and then he'd pack us all up, and we'd go to school and in Massachusetts and then come back on weekends. It's what some of you all are doing right here, where you're trying to get through school and you're trying to feed your family at the same time, and all five of us ate quite a bit. 
Mother tried to teach us to fast and pray so we wouldn't run up the food bill, but we never learned. So one of those trips, and those were hard, tight days. One of those trips, we were getting ready. We all piled in after school Friday afternoon to go to the trek to New York State from Massachusetts. We all got in the car and were piled in for the weekend. And Daddy checked his money because if you travel up north, there are toll roads. There are lots of them. When I was in Pennsylvania and New Jersey just this fall, just to get me back and forth to the airport, my little hostess couple, I think, put $20 each way going back and forth in tolls. It was incredible. Well, he checked his pockets, and we didn't have enough money for the tolls. So we couldn't go on the Massachusetts Turnpike and the New York Thruway. We had to go the the whistle stop way all the way. So the three-hour trip turned into a six- or seven-hour trip. So, and five darling children such as ourselves, you can get the picture. Well, then he checked his pockets and he didn't even have enough to feed as well, you know, like to take everybody out. There were no Wendy's in those days. So all of a sudden, we're all hungry. We get ready for supper and daddy goes, they talk quietly in the front seat and then daddy goes in and he gets donuts and peanuts. And he says, look what I have. He always was very upbeat. Look what I have tonight. You are getting donuts and peanuts. And we thought, what a marvelous thing. So we just ate donuts and we ate peanuts and they passed out the water and more donuts. We could eat all the donuts we wanted and all the peanuts. Well, of course, we got filled up very cheaply and we didn't realize quite what was happening. So we ate all those donuts and peanuts. Well, when we got to New York, I had the sickest tummy. And I remember we went to my grandfather's first and spent the night there. And I ran in the house and said, oh, granddaddy, my tummy hurts. I am sick of donuts and peanuts. Do you know what? I want meat and potatoes and I even want peas. And there was something I had gotten to the end of junk food and I wanted something solid. I've never forgotten that because what we have here is you ladies are getting meat and potatoes from Jeremiah and you're hanging in there. This is no happy light froth. So that what, as you could say, oh my goodness, remember that God is doing something as we're studying Jeremiah that he couldn't do in any other way. So that as we settle into the meat and potatoes of the word, what is he saying? In chapter 13, we get God, the, our precious heavenly father, who is trying to draw Judah into a love relationship. And he's gone from metaphors into object lessons. The first object lesson that he gives is a loincloth. God is very creative. I would not have thought of this one, would you? So he says, Jeremiah, what I want you to do, I want you to get a sash. And I want you to put it around your waist. And then he said, I want you to wear it. And then I want you to take it off and I want you to hide it down by the river Euphrates. And then I want, and which was a very long trip, very long trip. And then he said, then I want you to go back and get it. And of course, when Jeremiah went back and got it, what had happened? It was totally ruined. It had been high, buried down in the ground by the river Euphrates and damp, and it was rotted. And then the Lord said, this is what Israel is like. I long to bring Israel into a love relationship with myself so that they depended on me. And there was a clinging of their heart to my heart. Like the end of Psalm 91, those who cleave to me in love. And there's a precious promises. I will honor them and I will be with them. He says, I want you to cling to me. 
because I wanted to give you honor. I wanted to give you praise and I wanted you to give you glory, but you wouldn't hear. So that when I wanted to draw you into a love relationship and, and you, you backed away and you hid and you got as far from me as you could. And then when I went to get you and rediscovered you, what had happened, you were totally marred and worthless and you could no longer love me and you could no longer hear my voice. And so what this whole chapter 13 is about pride. What had happened is Israel, Judah had decided they didn't want to go God's way. They really wanted to go their own way and they were self-reliant pride. Say, Lord, we like your gifts, but we don't like your control over our lives. I'd rather do it my way. And so God uses a second object lesson in this chapter. He said, Jeremiah, go get a bottle, a flask, and fill it with wine. So he does. And he says, this bottle filled with wine is symbolic of what is going to happen when you turn away from the eternal God. You turn away from light. When you turn away from God, you turn away from life, and you turn away from truth. And you enter into darkness. You begin to stumble around like drunk men and drunk women. You don't know where you're going. You can't think straight. You can't remember what you've done so that you are in a no man's land. And it's very clear here. He says, Israel has turned away from me and they are like staggering drunken people filled on wine of their own choosing. And they no longer know which end is up and which end is down. And he says, darkness comes upon you in 16. Give glory to God. Do not be proud. Darkness has come. Your feet stumble on the dark mountain while you look for light. And the light turns into the shadow of death. And then ultimately, what is hell? It is eternal darkness. There is not one bit of light. And so he says, when you turn away from me, the author of life, the author of love and truth, you enter into darkness and you stagger around trying to find your way just like an alcoholic does, just like a drunk does. And he said, that is exactly what Judah has done. And that is exactly what Judah is like. Now, do you know, I remember reading this story, the, this like little poem here. The father loved his oldest daughter as much as he loved any of his other children. He loved her when the police caught her shoplifting. He loved her when she claimed she worshipped the devil and collected a call paraphernalia. He loved her when she was uh, arrested for drug abuse and her drug use worsened. He loved her when she seduced a married man in the neighborhood. The father loved his daughter as much as he loved any of his other children. He loved her when he cut off her allowance. He loved her when he took away her car keys. He loved her when he let her experience prison. He loved her when he committed her for psychiatric care. And he finally loved her when he asked her to move out from his home and let her fend for herself. For a long time, the daughter thought that the father hated her. But years later, after she was much used and much abused, she realized who loved her and she went home. And do you know, 
some of what you and I don't understand quite in the pathos of this Jeremiah chapter, these Jeremiah chapters is exactly that. It is a heavenly father who is talking to what we, wayward children who have absolutely spit in his face and said, I don't want to go your way. I am going my own way. And God says, I would like to give you honor, praise and renown and glory, but you will have nothing to do with it. And so when he doesn't, they don't listen to those object lessons. God says, I'm going to try one more thing. I'm going to cause drought. And maybe if there's drought, maybe the chastening of that will draw my people to myself. Can't you see the pathos in this father? where he's trying to reach out and doesn't know quite what to do to try to get his daughter's attention before she utterly ruins her life. And so he, he says, in 14, I will send drought. And he sends national drought. And all the false gods of the people of Judah, no one can send rain. Ishtar can't send rain. Moloch can't send rain. Baal, the rain god, can't send rain. And in their heart of hearts, they know the only one that can send rain is God himself. So they begin to modify their behavior a little. And you get a very pathetic picture because Judah mourns in 14. Her gates languish. The cry of Jerusalem has gone up. Their nobles have sent the lads for water. They went to the cisterns to find water. They returned with empty vessels. They were ashamed and confounded. They could not find any water. And of course, this is picking up where it was in chapter 2, 13. The theme verse that he said, you've let go of the fountain of living water to choose cisterns that are full of holes and you cannot slake your thirst in any other place but in a love relationship with myself and in obedience to me and in obedience to my commands. So what and my commands that are the blueprint for life and for relationship. And so they go searching and they can't find any water. So then they begin to get a little religious. So in the middle of 14, you find they begin to pray and they begin to talk real sweet talk to God. They said, oh, our backslidings are many. We've sinned against you. Oh, the hope of Israel in verse eight. And then they said, why should you be like a stranger in the land and like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man astonished, like a mighty one who cannot save? And do you know what they are doing? Their hearts haven't returned to God in, in, in sincerity, only in pretense. They are wanting to do the right little formula and say God will meet their needs and provide rain. But do you know what they're saying to God? They're doing exactly what you and I do many times and exactly what we've seen done where they're playing the blame game. They say, oh, we're so sorry, but like the man who committed adultery multiple times and he came home to his wife and I said, I'm so, he said, I'm so sorry, please take me back one more time. But you know, I really wouldn't be unfaithful if you were a better wife. So that he exactly turns it around so he doesn't take ownership for his own sin. But of course he's an innocent victim because his wife isn't there to meet his needs and do what she needs to do. And he would not be adulterous if his wife was living up to her part of the bargain. So he's doing exactly, the Israel, Judah's doing to God exactly what we do in our relationships and have had done to us. So the truth gets all boggled up and it's not truth at all. And so that, and God will not have it. God will not have it. 
And God says, that is absolutely no. And God says, enough is enough. I've sent famine and I've sent a drought to try to draw you into reality of what the situation is and how lost you are and how hellbound you are and how fragmented your the society is. But you will not hear it. And because of that, do you know what I'm going to do? Judgment has got to come. And why does judgment have to come? Do you know one of the main reasons judgment has to come? Because of your choices as mine as adults and then what it does to the children. Do you know what someone told me yesterday, a college girl, she's doing her practicum in Jessamine County in one of our schools in the second grade. There are only three families, that only three children that still have whole families with their own mother and their own daddy. That's how covenant-breaking we are as an American people. And there are only 22 children in the class. And already since school started the end of August, there have been three children that have been so abused they've had to call in outside help. This is not far away. This is right in our county. Because do you know what happens when you and I break covenant relationship with the eternal God? We begin to break covenant relationships with one another. And then what I do is I use and abuse you if I jolly well please because my point of reference is me, myself, and I. And don't I have a right to be whatever I want to be and do whatever I want to do? And nobody's going to tell me what to do. And you and I get a whole generation of people like that. And who suffers? The ones that are innocent and the ones that are very much on the heart of God, your babies and mine, your neighbor's babies, your children, and then we have free love. And what do we have? We have unborn babies that become illicit waste, product, waste products from illicit sexual relationships. And God in his mercy said, I will not stand for it. He is very tender toward children. He's very tender toward babies. He is very tender toward the old and the hurting and the handicapped. And he will fight. And after a while, he'll call to try to get our attention. But if we refuse as a nation to hear, and we are in the same situation today they were then, we refuse. I was turning the channels. I'm watching about Israel so much because of Billy. So I'm watching more than trying to see if I can turn the channel the other day to try to hear. And there's this psych the psychic advertisement. We have refused living water and we go to the psychics. So what does it say? The tarot cards are right here. Someone calls in, the lady goes, she says, oh, the cards never lie. So just break up that relationship. The cards never lie. And then another lady, oh, continue in that later relationship, no matter what, the cards never lie. She must have said the cards never lie three times in the course of a 30-second commercial. And I thought, Jesus, how far we have come. It is an absolute abomination. And we've rejected Jesus Christ from public school. We've rejected him from the home. We've rejected him from even the church. We've had two people call. You can be in the church and you can have affairs. You can worship Sophia. You can have be a homosexual or a lesbian. But pray if you preach the gospel, you may end up in the middle of the year on your ear. 
In just the past week, I've heard of two that are out. And what was their sin? They preached the word of God. And the head lady, the treasurer, and the head man didn't like it. We want tickling ears. We want things that just let us go in the status quo. We do not want to deal with sin. And we are self-reliant and proud and refuse to say yes to the eternal God and refuse to humble ourselves. And God calls and he calls and we calls and we just put our Walkman in our ears. We turn up the TV louder and we are never alone and we never let him hear. We never hear him. And judgment day will come and God will say, where were you? I called and called and you'll say, well, God, I didn't hear you. He said, you weren't listening. And the trouble is now we have a whole society that's not listening. And in chapter 15, what do we have? God says the situation is so grievous that even if Moses or Samuel came and they interceded, I could not turn the hearts of these people. These people are absolutely hardened to my voice. And the only alternative is judgment and then to start again, maybe with the next generation or a remnant that will go into such pain that out of that pain, blessed pain, they will find me. And so in chapter 15, you get the absolute anguish of an eternal God. Where he, he just says, Jeremiah, it's hopeless. Even prayer. Now, I just pray. And I do not believe that's where we are in America yet. I do not believe it. And one of the precious things is the wonderful Heritage 2000 conference. And the incredible response. God isn't finished. There is a remnant in America still. There is a remnant in Wilmore. There's a remnant to hold on so that you and I can still intercede that God will soften our hearts so that we will begin to say, I am tired of peanuts and donuts. I am ready to sink my teeth into meat and potatoes and be all his and be a Jeremiah Christian that come what's may. I will not turn back. I will go forward no matter what it costs. And so what we have in chapter 15 is God in as he said, because of the sins of Manasseh, these people have turned from me and their hearts are so hard, they refuse to repent. And after a while, Pilgrim's Progress says, we cannot repent. I remember hearing of one precious child of Christian parents who knew the gospel, knew the gospel, knew the gospel, and was like this little gal, very rebellious. And then his family prayed and prayed. And one night, he traveled to the West Coast when the hippie movement was at its height and was sleeping in his car that was like a jalopy on the beach. And he lost all the money that he had, which was $400. He couldn't find it. And he panicked. And he rummaged through the car. He pulled out the seats. He couldn't find it. He'd been with druggies. And, and he was sure they had taken it from him. And then he had absolutely nothing. And he's on the West Coast with absolutely nothing. And in his panic on that beach, all of a sudden God showed up. And he said, you have heard and heard and heard. You have said no and no and no. You, t you said, I can take care of myself. Thank you very much, God. I'm doing it my way. And he said, "You are." God said, "You are absolutely panicked over the loss of four hundred dollars." Said, "How how omnipotent are you?" 
And he said, this is the last time I am coming to you. This is the last time. I'm not going to just keep coming and coming to be rejected and rejected. And he said, you either go with me or I will not come back. Because we just think God is just going to be there and be there. But it's like a to choose either stop your adulterous actions and become faithful to me or please, you're going to have to go. I can't live this way anymore. And that's how God is. That's how God is. And he said he knelt there in the beach and he said, I surrender. I surrender. I at last surrender. And he did. He met God and worked in with the Indians down in Columbia. Had dinner at our table. We're coming out of the bush and coming. And he was so cute because he ate. We had chicken. He'd even eat the bones and everything. Because the Indians didn't. They left, eat, ate it all. I said, when you go home to America and go on a date, don't eat the bones. I said, your little girlfriend will be overwhelmed. I said, I'm overwhelmed. So he said yes, and God used him until he took him down. And God, but then in chapter 15, God kind of reaches bottom because he's so sad. And then Jeremiah reaches bottom. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in ministry and you said, wow, this is hard. Wow, I call and call and cry and no one hears. I give and give and give and there's no response. I want, I'm want. i willing to do it and there's no money. Like little Lucy. Here we are and then the because we're backslidden. We're not supporting missionaries. We're not giving to God. He's like 15th on our tithe list. I'll take care of you, God, after I get everything else covered. And so, but he just cries. He goes, my mother, and woe is me in 10 of 15. And he just, he's so sad. And then he goes, he kind of, he says in verse 15 of chapter 15, Lord, you know and remember me and you care for me. Take vengeance on my persecutors. Because do you know what happens? When you stand up for Jesus, there's some that are going to love you, and there's some that are going to not like you one speck. And so the people that did not like Jeremiah were many more than those that did like Jeremiah. And so they wanted to kill him, just like the Jews wanted to kill the Lord Jesus. So he says, God, please fight for me. And then he, then he reminisces. He says, Lord, your words were found, and I ate them, and they were so sweet to me. I am called by your name. I am yours. But then he kind of goes backwards and he goes, but God, my pain is so great in 18 and my wound is incurable over the pain of this people because what he is realizing is they have rejected God and they are not going to change. Their no is a no and their hearts are hard and as he preaches, their hearts get harder. And God is still calling them because God calls to the nth power to try to draw us back into himself. And he keeps calling. But Jeremiah realizes he is going to be working with people where there's not going to be a big revival. That these people's hearts are hard and he is still to go to them. Because God in his mercy is still drawing those people to himself. Trying to. 
And he goes, God, are you faithful? Are you an unreliable stream? Have I put my hope in a lie or are you reality? And sooner or later, if you walk with God, there is going to be a time where you have to, things will get hard enough. You'll say, God, where are you? What is happening? And Jeremiah was in that point. And God came to him and he said, Jeremiah, you can do what Israel's done and turn away from me. Or you can return and I will bring you back. And he said, if you will come back to me, because there's a choice in ministry, there's a choice in life. You and I can start out, but just like Peter in the New Testament, where he said, to, after Jesus preached on John 6, and he said, eat my blood and bread and my body and drink my blood. And like the bread and the wine and the juice said, what is he saying? And they all departed. And he turned to the twelve and he said, Will you also depart? And Peter said, No. He said, To whom shall we go? But it is God is calling us to radical obedience. This place is to get us ready for eternity when God will meet us with his living presence. But while we are here, it will not be easy. God is calling us to pick up the cross and follow him. And so Jeremiah is confronted again. Will he pick up the cross and go forward, even though it doesn't mean success or health or wealth or prosperity? Will he still go forward in obedience to God? And what does Jeremiah do? He says yes. <laughs> he says yes. Only one against the whole backdrop of a nation. But there was one. And Jesus is looking for you and I today and saying, is there one? Is there one? I read the sweetest story last night. Remember Jonathan Edwards of the Great Awakening in America? I, I learned something about him I didn't know last night. He, he was married to Sarah Pierpont, and she was a preacher's daughter of, very famous pre, of a very famous preacher at that time. They had 11 children, and all 11 children lived. They had a very close, loving, intimate relationship. And he would ride every day and pray, and many times she would ride with him. He would get sermon ideas and notes, and he'd write them down and pin them to his jacket. And as he got in, if she hadn't gone with him, she'd unpin him and put him in order for him so he'd know what he's going to do to preach on. And so they had a very close relationship. Well... They began to pray for revival and an awakening in England, and it occurred. And remember, we remember the sermon sinners in the hands of the angry God, but that wasn't the only side of Jonathan Edwards. He had another one, safety, fullness, and sweet refreshment to be found in Jesus. And so as he preached the gospel, God moved. But then as the, the revival waned, some of the people in his church got unhappy with him over a doctrinal issue, and they voted him out of the church 23 years in Northampton, and Jonathan Edwards found himself without a church and 11 children. And he had been faithful. So then Jonathan Edwards waited, and after a while, God opened up another church in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, but it was on the frontier. And this very learned, distinguished scholar was preaching to a congregation 
and most of them were precious Indians who were just learning to read and write. And for seven years, he preached in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, to Indians that were just learning to read and write. Um, at the end of seven years, his daughter was married to a man who was elected to Princeton University. And he unexpectedly died, the son-in-law. And Princeton called him and said, could you come and be president of Princeton? And he wept and wept. And wept. And he went from Stockbridge to Princeton, and Sarah was going to pack up, and he went to be with his grieving daughter, and smallpox hit New Jersey. Well, the vaccination was just out, and he believed in that vaccination, but they didn't know quite how much to give. And he got vaccinated, and with just a few hours, he was in eternity. He never got to see Sarah. She hadn't come yet. Um, so he died with two daughters there. And he said, please give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature I trust, as I trust is spiritual and will therefore continue forever. So he died, and you think, wow, what a waste. And you think, wow, God, how difficult in the life of a man you used in a major revival. But just like the life of Jeremiah, 2,000 years we're still studying later, the end is not yet. Because Jonathan Edwards was a very good daddy as well as a scholar. And they tracked down 1,400 of his descendants. In those descendants that he gave to the world, there were 13 college presidents, 100 lawyers, 66 doctors, 65 university professors, two deans, 80 holders of public office, three senators, three state governors, 135 authors, and many missionaries. The family up to that point had cost the country nothing in poverty, in crime, in hospital care, or asylum services. On the contrary, they had been of utmost usefulness. So what Jeremiah, he could have, at the end, when he's ousted from his church of 23 years, lost the victory. But he didn't. Jonathan Edwards held on to Jesus and went forward in humility teaching Indians who could barely read and write. Jeremiah did the same thing. He could have said, I'm taking my ball and going home, but he persevered. And then God gives another object lesson in chapter 16. And he said, Jeremiah, I don't want you to get married. And he said, well, why is that? He said, because my wife has left me and I want you to be a symbol to the people of what it is like to be so lonesome and not to have your beloved with you and have your beloved reject you and enter into adulterous affairs. And do you know in the Hebrew culture, there was abs there is not even a word for a bachelor 
there's no such thing as a single man. So you can imagine the starkness of that that word picture to those people. And then he said, do you know what? I don't want you to go to funerals and I don't want you to go to weddings because society is going to deteriorate to such an extent that there won't be time for funerals and the grief will be so great that no one will rejoice in marriage. Because ultimately, if we reject him, ultimately, it only takes a matter of a few generations where you have the disintegration and social dysfunction of a society. You cannot live without him. We just eat each other up, literally. We kill each other off, literally. We beat each other up, literally. And nobody can trust each other because we all lie to each other in relationships. There is no truth. So that in 16, he says, I don't want you to marry. That is the word picture I want, <clears throat> the object lesson, for them to see my incredible grief that they have rejected me. And he said, and, and I, so what God is wanting to say is to get their attention. Now, what does God then in chapter 17 is this great point, a great passage of scripture that both Calvin and Wesley say is the description of the heart without God. In 17.9, that as heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? That you and I without him, we are absolutely lost and deceitful but that when he comes in, light and truth comes in and reality. And that the only one that knows your heart is Jesus Christ. The only one that knows my heart is Jesus Christ. And as we wait upon Jesus Christ, he will share the reality of what my heart is really like with me if I will listen and then walk in obedience. Then this also points out so graphically the choice because you and I are not robots. God gives us a choice. Will we choose him or will we choose to reject him and walk away from him? Will we choose to be self-reliant or will we choose to be God-reliant and depend upon him? And if we choose God, what happens is we have, as we trust in him, our hope comes from him. And even though we are in difficult circumstances, it's like someone, we're like a tree who's put it by water and the roots spread out to the river so that even when heat comes and the leaf, the leaf will still be green, even when drought comes, we will not be anxious or fearful. Even during the most difficult times, our lives will yield fruit. And then that great prayer, heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved for you are my praise. Have you and I entered into that today where he is our praise? I read a little story too this week that helped me about one that chose to be God dependent. So it said, yes, Lord, I want to be all yours. And how God worked in the nitty gritty of her little life. She had said, Jesus, I want to be all yours. And she was seeking to bring the reality of Jesus into her day by day life so that God would control it. And so she, in her quiet time, she said, Lord, would you take control? One day she had an interaction with a little woman named Ruth. And her heart was drawn to her. And she began to pray for her. 
And as she prayed for Ruth, she said, you know what? I feel like I need to take some a gift to Ruth to just encourage her because she's in a difficult time in her life. So this little lady decided she would take something to her. And they had a farm. It was in New Hampshire. They had a maple sugar farm. So she said, I'll take her maple sugar. It was a, a maple syrup. And it was a wonderful year for maple syrup. So she got a, a jug of maple syrup to take. And so she kept forgetting. She had was busy and she couldn't remember. She forgot. So she said, I'll put the maple syrup all right by my coffee table. As I run out the door, I'll run this to Ruth. And she put it on the coffee table, forgot, and then had company. So she hid it in her closet to get ready for company. A month later, opened that closet door, and there's Ruth's maple syrup. She said, oh, Lord, you told me that how many weeks ago? And here I still haven't connected with Ruth. I just cannot seem to please you. I cannot seem to do what I need to do. And she was so sad. She said, today I'm taking that. She picked up the syrup. She picked up a purse. She went to the car, got in the car, and drove to Ruth. Knocked on the door and said, Ruth, here is maple syrup. And Ruth opened it and opened the door and looked at her and looked at the maple syrup and burst into tears. And she said, oh, I waited too long. And she said, Ruth said, today is my birthday. My husband forgot. My kids forgot. Even my own mother forgot. Everybody forgot my birthday. And here you remember my birthday. And she goes, well, I don't think I could quite take credit for and she said, and she said, Ruth wrote her three thank you notes to thank her for not forgetting her birthday. And the little lady went home and she said, Jesus, you worked as I sought to be dependent on you. You worked for me, through me, and in spite of me to accomplish your purposes. That's what dependence on Jesus is. He can take all the mistakes and get you and your maple syrup and me and my maple syrup to somebody on their birthday when everybody else in the world is forgotten. That's how kind he is. And that's what God wants us to enter into. He says, I want to enter into a love relationship so that I am all yours, you are all mine, and every single part of your life, even our mistakes, even our not getting done what we think we should get done, God can transform, put it on his schedule, and make it eternal and make it redemptive. Isn't that precious? I would like to just close with one more thing, and then I'm through. There was a man a hundred years ago who was the head of the, was the head of, his daddy was the head of the Borden Company. Uh, milk dairy company and he had a son that was he sent overseas to see the world and he was a Christian he gave him a Bible a servant and they went all around the world when he came home he was so sad he saw all he saw was pain and hurt and sorrow and poverty so this young man Borden decided he said I'm going to give my life to Christian mission so he went into the ministry and went to to Yale, uh, to Divinity School. Um, and when he got, they said, when they got out, everybody came and said, could you head up the family company? Could you be a lawyer? Wall Street wanted him. He was very wealthy man. He said, no, God's called me into the ministry because, and in the missions, because he's called me to be a part of what he's doing around the world. And so he wrote in his diary when God called him on that world trip, no reserve. 
And then when he, he gave up Wall Street and the family business, he put no reserve, no regrets. And so he, when he gave up Wall Street, no regrets, and he went to China. And on his way to China, he got as far as Egypt, and at 25, he died. Sickness just took him quickly. And, he, and so his daddy came to get his body, and he found the Bible that he had given him. No reserves, no regrets, and no retreats. Well, do you know what? I, I read this article, and it, talked, it said that there was a young senator in 1996, uh, 1994, who went to, to Washington, and he had gotten the position. And his daddy, an ardent Christian, went with him, and the family went with him. They were to, he was to be sworn in. And his daddy looked at him, and he said, Washington is a place that is very arrogant, and they think they have all the power. And he said, oh, son of mine, I hope that there is a humility in your heart that you first of all seek him and his righteousness and you do not get proud and self-reliant but you seek him and so the son took that and then the family stood around him to pray for him as he got ready to go into his inaugural ceremonies and his daddy was old and he was on the sofa and he was struggling to get up and the son thinking to be kind he said dad you don't need to struggle to stand and he said, son, I'm not struggling to stand. I'm struggling to kneel. And he said he knelt there and the son knelt by him. And then he prayed that God would give him a spirit that was broken and humble before the eternal God instead of one that was arrogant and proud and full of self-reliance. And do you know that daddy went to heaven on the trip home from that dedication? And the senator stood up and said, we need to be a nation that has no regrets, no reserves, no regrets, and no retreats. And do you know Jeremiah was that? Chapter 15, he kneels and he says, God, no reserve, no regrets, and no retreats. Now the question this morning is, where are you? The question this morning is, where am I? When it gets tough, do we flee? Or are we like Jeremiah to the very end? He was faithful because God was faithful to him. Let's pray. Jesus, Jesus, would you just come today? And would you co complete a work in our heart, own hearts? And Jesus, would you do in my life too what you want to do? You are truly worthy of our love, our adoration, our worship. That out of our lives, hatred and evil and envy and pride will not flow but love, laughter, joy, peace, all the blessings of the love of God. Would you transform us today? And would you set us free? In Jesus' name.